This is only a game. I'm Karen Given. Just 16 minutes into the 2015 Women's World Cup final against Japan, American Carly Lloyd scored for the third time. And the internet went crazy, not just about Lloyd's hat trick, but about this call by Telemundo's Andres Cantor. Andres Cantor spent 38 seconds shouting goal on Carly Lloyd's hat trick goal. Okay, so it's been about 25 seconds, 13 to go. I am Andres Cantor. I am the lead soccer play-by-play announcer for Telemundo Network. I know the first thing that everyone wants to talk about is how you call a goal, and we're going to get to that. But I actually want to start our conversation where your love of soccer began. Where did you grow up, and how important was soccer to you? I grew up in Argentina, in Buenos Aires. And pretty much in my days, soccer was the only sport every kid wanted to play. I think all of us played soccer or football, like we called it. I played in the recess in my schools. I played on the weekends. I played in the streets. I played in clubs. I played everywhere I could. And you also grew up listening to soccer on the radio, right? Back then... In, in my growing days, in the late 60s, early 70s, television wasn't the strongest medium. Radio was. You know, we listened either when we went to the stadium or in the car or at home to Jose Maria Munoz. He was like the number one play-by-play announcer. He had a very, very good rhythm. He knew the game very well. This was a phenomenon. I just said that all of my friends played soccer. Well, all of us listened to Jose Maria Muniz. My ears still buzz from remembering him calling the games. Now, were you one of those kids who would practice calling games yourself? We all did. We all did. And when we played games, you know, in the park, we always have, you know, the replay of the play-by-play of the goal that I just had scored against my my friends. Honestly, uh, I never knew I was going to end up doing neither television nor radio. I knew from a very early age that I wanted to be a journalist. I went to USC and did not take one broadcast journalism class because I liked writing. So in 1979, when you were a teenager, your family immigrated to the United States. What was that like for you? It was um, very, very tough, to be honest with you. Uh, First of all, because obviously I was a teenager. I had the love of soccer. I had all my friends. I had pretty much my teenage life. And, you know, I was taken away to a different culture, a different country. I thought I knew how to speak English because I had in my English classes in my school uh, in Argentina, they taught British English. So when I got here with the few British words I knew, trouser instead of pants, pupil instead of student, and people were talking to me and I couldn't understand anything. I said, oh my. So it wasn't easy to tell you the truth. Like Brody, I think this resonates with many immigrants to this country that at the beginning, you know, we have to fight 
and you know be tough because it's it's very very hard to be away from your home country but then at the end if you stay you grow up loving the place we call home now so as you mentioned you went to college at USC but you did not study broadcasting what was your plan my plan was to be a, a written journalist i wanted to be a print journalist but you know fate and I guess destiny put me in the path of, of television first and radio second. Well, so let's talk about that. In February of 1987, you were 23 years old. You got an audition with the Spanish International Network, which would later become Univision. Tell me that story. They called me from SIN. They told me to bring two suits, two ties, and two shirts for the audition. So I got there. I had never been in a TV studio in my life. I get dressed. They say, we're going to put the game to tape. And the first game is going to air next Sunday and the following the, the next Sunday. And I say, what, just like that? Yeah, yeah, we want to try you out. So that made me a little bit nervous because, you know, if the audition would have gone bad, okay, they throw the tape away, they, are, they erase it, and that's the end of the story. But when they told me that they were, gonna, they were going to air the audition, I kind of thought to myself, oh, whoa. The first game, I did color commentary. We took a break for lunch. And then the person that ended up hiring me said, we're looking for a play-by-play announcer, really, not a color commentator. Do you think you can call the second game? And I said, sure, why not? I was 23. (laughs) I wasn't going to say no at that time. So I called the second game. I had the rhythm of the play-by-play in my ear by listening to games so much in in my life. So it wasn't something totally new to me. So I gave it my best. Pretty much within the week after calling that first game, they gave me a full-time job. Wow. So you call that game. It's the first game you ever called. And it's also the first time you made what is now your signature goal call. Did you surprise yourself? I'm going to tell you a funny story. The guy, that the person that ended up being my boss, remember I said this was after lunch. You know, he was kind of like following the game, but like he wasn't dozing off. But you know how it is after lunch that yeah. you get a little a little sleepy. And then the goal came and, whoa, that woke him up for sure. But I did not think anything about it, really, because, you know, that's the way... I heard goal calls all my life in in Argentina. Hmm. So you called every game of the 1990 World Cup, but it was really in 1994 when the tournament was held in the U.S. that you really broke through with an English-speaking audience. You were on Letterman. Here now to call a goal from a World Cup game played yesterday, please welcome Univision's Andres Cantor. Andres! Viene Italia por el empate, la toca Donadoni, vino para Roberto Musi, Estaballo. Hay peligro, Estaballo, viene, viene, le pegó. ¡Gol! The following year, you were in a Pepsi commercial. Was there any part of you that worried that you were becoming known for just one thing? Yes. I found some old DVDs the other day, and I did find one story done by ABC News of the 1994 World Cup, which pretty much answers your question, because I I 
did get a lot of notoriety, obviously, by the goal call itself. But in, in this two and a half minute piece for the evening news uh, done by Armin Katayan, I think uh, he came down to Miami. He talked about my style and my passion for the game and the way I call and he did different clips, not just of the goal call. I remember vividly, it was very nice that somebody recognized that it was. It wasn't just, you know, the goal call, that the goal call wasn't a gimmick. It was something that I feel and something that comes out naturally. And that beyond the goal call, there's a lot of preparation to have the audience engaged, entertained, and passionate from the first whistle to the last. Hmm, absolutely. So did you really almost faint while calling Landon Donovan's last-minute goal against Algeria at the 2010 World Cup? Yes, yes, <laughs> I, I, I did. I did. First of all, let me give the, the audience some context. The U.S. was being eliminated in the first round. It was 0-0, 92nd minute. It was freezing cold in Pretoria that night. That World Cup in South Africa was played in the winter. Usually the World Cups are played in the summer. If the game would have been in the summer, I probably would have fainted. I think the cold kept me going. I had given it my all. Uh, radio play-by-play is totally different, or the way at least I call games on, on radio, is totally different than TV. I go, I, you know, I drive 140 miles an hour, on radio, and I respect the speed limit on TV at 65 because the pictures tell the story. So I was all out. I was out of steam, out of gas, out of energy. And then the Landon Donovan counterattack happened. Just kept on going and going and going. I had a hoarse voice. And then... toughest call party of my life because of what the goal meant the minute it happened how strongly I yelled it out if you listen carefully at the end of the goal call after I'm explaining that the goal was scored by the greatest player in the history of the US there I started losing and I stumbled I said, I was exhausted. You have recently finished calling your seventh Premier League season for Telemundo. And I know none of us could have predicted that 2020 would be all that 2020 is. But what was it like calling soccer games during a pandemic? We have to really be careful and and be sensitive to what we're saying when we call games now that soccer is back. It's not the the same game that we used to see before the pandemic. The passion of the fans make a whole lot of difference. I enjoyed, you know what I enjoy? I mean, out of the, uh, out of the bad, I love listening to what is said on the, on the pitch by the players and by the coaches. It's something that you never, never, never hear because of the roar of the crowd. Andres Cantor, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me. Thank you very much for this opportunity.
Andres Cantor is celebrating his 20th year with Telemundo. A few weeks back, we brought you a special episode on sports, racism, and the myth of meritocracy. It's really easy to look at the starting line of a 100-meter race and feel like everybody has an equitable chance. I think that's really seductive. The problem is the moment the game ends. The structure of sports looks, sadly, too much like America itself. Sport is of this world, and our world is deeply, deeply inequitable. And that's just the facts. And now we want you to help us push the conversation further by joining us for a live virtual event this coming Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern. This will be your chance to join the Only A Game staff one last time before the show ends its run in September. And to ask your questions of Penn State's Dr. Amira Rose Davis, Longtime journalist Derek Z. Jackson and Princeton track alum Russell Dinkins. 65% of athletes in the Ivy League are white. And the greatest kind of affirmative action into the Ivy League is actually through athletics. That's coming up this Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern. Register now and learn how to submit your questions at WBUR.org slash events. In 1974, Gordy Ansley entered a 100-mile endurance horse race. The only problem was he didn't own a horse. You know, I've always been a terrible procrastinator. It's historic. I expected, oh, I'll just get another good horse by that time. Well, I didn't. How Gordy's procrastination led to the creation of a brand new sport. Coming up on Only a Game from NPR. Who doesn't love a good story? On Circle Round, the storytelling podcast from WBUR, we adapt folk tales from around the world as radio plays, featuring beloved stars of the stage and screen, like Seinfeld's Jason Alexander, Hamilton star Philippa Sue, and Emmy, Grammy, and Tony Award winner Billy Porter. Circle Round has been named a top kids podcast by The New York Times, Good Housekeeping, and Time Magazine, and we think you'll love it too. Find Circle Round wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Karen Given. Stop me if you've heard this one before. The modern-day sport of trail ultramarathoning began 45 years ago when a man showed up to a 100-mile horse race without a horse. An ultramarathon is defined as anything longer than 26.2 miles. And it's true. Tens of thousands of people every year run 50, 100, even 1,000 miles over rough terrain because of that man and his non-existent horse. But the story of ultramarathoning actually begins with another man named Wendell Roby and another horse. Wendell's a, a little guy. It's just, he's strong, he's wiry, and he wears cowboy boots. Well, he doesn't anymore. He died in 84. That's Gordon Ainsley. Most people call him Gordy. He was a friend of Wendell's back in the day. In 1954, Wendell Roby was camping with the Sacramento Horsemen's Association at Robinson Flat, 30 miles west of Lake Tahoe. And while sitting around the campfire on the last night of the trip... Wendell was bragging about what a great horse he had, and one of the guys said, ah, you can't compare that to the the great horses of the last century. And Wendell says, well, what could they do that my horse can't? And the guy said, well, they could go 100 miles over 
mountains and desert. Oh, excuse me, I got a phone call. Anyway, and so Wendell said, well, what about mountains and canyons? <laughs> and so uh, he got a few of his friends together and they rode from Tahoe to Auburn. Wendell only planned to do it once, but then so many people said, God, if I thought you had any chance at all, I would have come with you. That's how the Western States 100 trail ride, now known as the Tevis Cup, began. And this is where I should probably mention that Gordy Ainsley isn't just an old friend of Wendell Roby's. He's now better known as the father of ultramarathoning. For Gordy, much as for Wendell, the Western States started with a horse. When I was a kid, I actually subscribed to Lone Ranger comic books. Gordy dreamed of owning a horse of his own. And years later, while attending college at UC Santa Barbara, he finally bought a horse named Rebel. And the lady said, someone had told her that it would make a good endurance horse. I said, what's that? A good endurance horse is what was needed to finish the Western States 100. By this point, 1971, Wendell Roby's trail ride was well established as one of many endurance horse races around the world. Rebel turned out to be a very good endurance horse, but Gordy was not an ideal rider. You know, I I weighed 200 pounds. Well, I weighed more than that. I weighed 205. Gordy says most riders walk their horses on the downhills. Running or trotting them with weight on their backs puts too much pressure on their front legs. Instead, Gordy hopped off Rebel's back and ran down the hills. And, you know, I'd be passing all these people who were walking their horses. Gordy's very clear on this. He says he's never been a great runner. He never had a lot of talent. But from the time he was very young, he'd learned to find solace in running. I just felt really out of place. Uh, we were Seventh-day Adventists. We went to church on the wrong day. We, My mom and grandma who raised me, I didn't have a dad. You know, that made me feel really, like, undeserving. I don't know. I, I wanted to belong so much, you know, and it's like... I remember this one day in the, I think it was second grade, I came out on on the playground and with a bag lunch, grandma had packed the lunch and, and I just, I, I couldn't see anybody I could go up to and say, you want to have lunch? I panicked and I just, I just felt like I couldn't breathe and I, I just dropped my lunch and I ran home for lunch. Gordy says that was his first run. Soon he was running to school whenever he missed the bus so that he didn't have to bother his mother for a ride. And then in junior high, he had a teacher who treated gym class like military PT drills, lots of push-ups. Gordy hated doing push-ups. You know, I'd goof off and he'd make me run. And I made sure I wore a real pained expression whenever he could see me. (laughs) And I was having a good time. And that brings us back to the early 1970s, when Gordy, running almost as often as he was riding, and Rebel finished two Western States trail rides. He didn't really like me that much, but we had a lot of fun together. But after that second ride, in the summer of 1972, Gordy met a woman. And she wanted to get married and have kids, and she also wanted me to give her my horse. And I figured, well, you know, we're going to spend our lives together, so I, I gave her my horse. And then, Gordy says, the woman dumped him, but she kept his horse. Gordy bought another horse for the 1973 Western States, but that horse went lame. 
That's when Gordy had a conversation with the secretary of the Western States Trail Foundation. Her name was Drusilla Barner. Drusilla came up to me, and she always spoke for Wendell. I mean, they were just like one voice. And she invited me to run the next year, which was 74. Run, as in without a horse. It was an interesting idea, but at first, Gordy brushed it off. You know, I've always been a terrible procrastinator. It's historic. And so I, I expected, oh, I'll just get a, another good horse by that time. Well, I didn't. So training to run 100 miles over harsh terrain felt easier to you than getting a new horse? Well, I hadn't gotten a new horse. Right. The whole thing with the evolvement of this incredible sport we have, it's such a uh, verification of a Hindu saying that the most beautiful lotus flower will always be the one that grows out of a dung heap. Actually, I think it's a Buddhist saying, but you get the idea. Gordy turned 27 years old that summer. He'd dropped out of college. He says he was aimless and depressed. And lacking anything better to do, he found himself visiting his old high school, where he started training for long-distance road races with the school's math and music teacher. That prepared him to run long distances, but he prepared for the grueling uphills and downhills of the trail by participating in a brand new sport called Ride and Tie. It doesn't really matter how it works. All you need to know is that it's a relay race involving teams of two runners and a horse. By the time the 1974 Western States came around, Gordy was in pretty good shape. He also had a new girlfriend. I told my my girlfriend, I said, well, I'm leaving at uh, such and such a time. Can you go up with me? And she says, oh, no, I'm, I'm going to the jalopy races with Margaret Friday night. And I go, what? You know, it's like I, I felt really left alone and abandoned. Somehow I knew I'm about to do the most important thing I've ever done in my life, and she's not going with me. Now, how did I know it was? But, of course, it was, you know. Gordy drove to camp on his motorbike and met up with a good friend. He calls her his sister. Her name is Diane. Diane asked me, where are you going to sleep? I said, I don't know. She says, well, why don't you sleep on our horse trailer? So, you know, we scooped out the manure. (laughs) I mean, horse, horse poop actually doesn't smell that bad. Gordy says the riders woke up early the next morning at 3 or 3.30. They had to feed and water their horses and get everything set for the 5 a.m. start. Gordy stayed in bed for a while. And finally I got up and I got, you know, I got ready to go. I had a lot of time because, you know, it doesn't take me as long to get ready for a run as a horse. About 10 minutes before the start, I went up to Ralph and Betty Deaver. They were sitting with a, you know, a gas lantern. One of those old kind that goes, shh. You know, yeah. And uh, I said, "Well, I guess I'll be going." And they said, "Well, good luck, Gordy." And I just disappeared into the darkness. It was like nobody knew it was happening. It was <laughs> one of my favorite words is auspicious. This was very inauspicious. <laughs> it was amazing. Soon, the horses and their riders caught up to Gordy. When we hit the single track trail, I had to go at their speed. You know, that was eight miles an hour, and that was way faster than I wanted to run. Well, for 100 miles, you know. I got to the 40-mile um, point, and 
I just said, you know, I, I, I'm never going to make this. It was 107. It was so hot I couldn't even focus. So I got to the point where I said, well, what can I do? And this voice from inside me said, I can still take one more step. Gordy told himself that as long as he could still take one more step, he would. But on the climb to Devil's Thumb, where the trail rises 1,600 feet in 1.6 miles, Gordy decided to quit. When he arrived at the top, he found his good friend Diane. So she came up to me and she goes, Gordy, how you feeling? And I go, I'm quitting. She goes, don't quit just yet. Come on over here under this tree and talk with Paige and me. So I did. And she correctly diagnosed what was wrong with me. I had run out of salt. See, because there weren't any aid stations. That's right. Gordy Ainsley had set out to run 100 miles in a race without a single water stop. The Thursday before the race, he'd bought 10 bottles of Gatorade and, using his motorbike, had stashed them along the course. And I thought that'd be plenty. I mean, 10 quarts? I mean, how much could you need? (laughs) Well, I found out you need a lot more than that. Diane massaged Gordy's legs and gave him salt tablets and water. And I couldn't believe it. It's like half hour later, I just felt fine. So Gordy kept running. He ran all the way to the finish line in Auburn. By then, he decided to stop worrying about the girlfriend who'd left him feeling abandoned when she'd gone to the jalopy races instead of traveling with him to the start. Instead, he was trying to impress a rider who'd accompanied him to the finish. I did a dive forward roll over the finish line, and they wrote it up in the paper that I'd done handspring. No, no, I, I, can't, I never was good at handspring, but I could do a dive forward roll. For the record, Gordy and that rider soon started dating. Gordy didn't run the Western States the next year, 1975, but a man named Ron Kelly did. He dropped out just two miles from the finish. It was like tragic. Well, it was more tragic for him than the rest of us. Tragic, because by this time, Gordy had realized that his aspirations were greater than just being known as the guy who showed up to a 100-mile horse race and decided to run instead. You know, if we're going to make this into a sport, we have to have more than me finish it, because at this point, I just look like a freak of nature that's a superhuman athlete. I knew I wasn't. A year later in 1976, a runner named Ken Shirk decided to give the Western States 100 a try. Everyone calls him Cowman. And I decided, okay, I want to make sure this one finishes. Gordy wasn't running again that year. He was working the last chance aid station, 43 miles from the start. When Cowman arrived at last chance, he was on pace to cross the line under the 24-hour limit. All he had to do was keep moving. Instead, he stopped to talk to Gordy. Cowman loves to talk. He just loves to talk. For the sake of accuracy, I have to point out that Cowman's not the only one who loves to talk. At this point in our conversation, Gordy and I had been talking for 34 minutes, and I'd asked three questions. We were, we were just chatting, mostly him chatting, you know. Finally, about a half hour later, I said, Calman, you can't sit here and talk to me and make it to Auburn in 24 hours. Get out of here. So he left. And that 30 minutes, he was 30 minutes late. He would, <laughs> he would have made the 24 hours if he hadn't sat there and talked to me for a half hour. He was close enough that 
Wendell came up after the awards ceremony and said, Gordy, let's make this a yearly event. That isn't, Wendell doesn't talk like that. So he comes up to me, goes, Gordy, let's make this a yearly event. And I go, with advertising and the whole bit? He goes, with advertising and the whole bit. So I put this uh, ad into Runner's World in the classifieds. It said, the ultimate challenge, 100 miles of cross-country running through the high mountains and deep canyons of Northern California, Sierra Nevada mountains. That was 1977. 14 runners started the race. One finished in under 24 hours. Two more in under 30. At what point did you realize that, like, you had started a sport? Well, in 78, we had 60 or 62 participants. It was 63. 30 finished, including Gordy, who attempted the race for the second time. After that... I was talking to Drew, Drusilla, Wendell's secretary, and I said, do you think the run will ever be as big as the ride? And she said, oh, much bigger. Her and Wendell saw where it was going to go. I didn't see where it was going to go. I wanted to start an event, you know, and I realized in, in 78 that I'd succeeded. The Western States is widely recognized as the world's oldest trail ultramarathon. In 1978, Gordy also helped establish the first 50-mile trail race. And soon after that, he stepped back from organizing races altogether. I've never been a manager, you know. I'm a Gemini, you know. It's like I invent things. And this sport Gordy Ainsley invented, the trail ultramarathon, it's grown. A lot. In 2018, there were more than 115,000 ultramarathon finishers in more than 2,000 races in North America alone. Not bad for the boy who started running because he was so desperate to find a place where he belonged. My, my grandma used to say, I had a lot of close calls when I was a kid, and she said, Gordy, the Lord is preserving you for a purpose. <laughs> I kind of think she was right. That story first aired in June of last year. On December 12, 1970, Roy Spencer barged into a TV station waving a gun and told the staff that he wanted to watch the Toronto Maple Leafs game. His son, Spinner, was going to be playing. Coming up, the tragic stories of Brian Spinner Spencer and his father, Roy. And remember, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Only a Game NPR. Need to escape the news for a moment? Check out Endless Thread, a podcast from WBUR and Reddit. From mysteries to histories to stories that will remind you of our shared humanity. Subscribe to Endless Thread on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Karen Given. Next week on Only a Game, how Olympic silver medalist Cheryl Toussaint is now carrying on her late coach's legacy as meet director for a girls track series. But now it's time for Charlie Pierce and the week's news. Hi, Charlie. Hey, Karen. 
After a total of 21 games were postponed due to COVID-19 quarantines, the Miami Marlins, Philadelphia Phillies, and St. Louis Cardinals are all back on the field. And MLB has released a new schedule to accommodate all the games that were missed. I can't imagine that this will be the last new schedule of the season. Can you? Oh, absolutely not. Now, I'm a, I've always been a huge fan of doubleheaders, <laughs> but this new schedule is just top-heavy with them. And I don't think there's any possible way that baseball can get through a season coherently. They're just too far behind. It's just crazy. I mean, according to this new schedule, the Marlins will play 27 games in the final 23 days of the season with no days off. And I thought I was overworked. Yeah, I mean, this kind of thing is something the Players Association has fought against for years. So there's a little bit of shock doctrine going on here, too. As you know, baseball is proceeding without fans, in the stadiums at least. But in Philadelphia, there is the Fandemic Crew, a group of fans who gather behind the fence outside the center field <laughs> concourse. And at least on Thursday, one of those fans brought an air horn. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> well, why don't we ask Aaron Boone? Because he was not happy about it. The Yankee manager was not expecting this. Uh, although why he wouldn't expect it in Philadelphia is anybody's guess. If, I mean, if any city was going to find a way to have obnoxious fans during a season when we're not supposed to have any fans, it would be Philadelphia. This is a highly imaginative and veteran crew of vandals and pranksters. You know, I get in trouble every time you diss Philadelphia fans. People write no, uh, well, in, I'm you sorry, should be nicer. Is, I mean, I can't, I can't think of anybody who would think this kind of thing through as thoroughly as these people did. Hey, <laughs> let's bring an air horn. And by the way, the umpire has no jurisdiction over us. The NHL reported zero positive tests during its first week of bubble play in Edmonton, Alberta, and Toronto. I mean, I know it's only the first week, but I am cautiously optimistic that we might actually see the Stanley Cup awarded in October. You? Yeah. The NHL's done a great job of putting a bubble together. I suspect, however, it's pretty easy to bubble in Edmonton. <laughs> I mean, really, I've been to Edmonton, okay? And outside of riding the submarine in the giant mall, there isn't a lot to do there, okay? (laughs) That being said, they've obviously been quite careful. As an added bonus, the hockey's been very good. The players have done a great job staying in shape. You already have, you know, the regular season being knocked off its pins with the Bruins, who are the number one team and had the best regular season record when we had a regular season, now screwing up and losing the top seed. 66 players opted out of the 2020 NFL season before Thursday's deadline, which, when you consider the number of players on NFL rosters, is not a huge number. Tom Brady did not opt out. He's all in, though he's having a little trouble adjusting to his new job with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. What's the problem? Are his 43-year-old knees finally giving out? (laughs) Actually, this is something I had not considered. For the first time in over 20 years, he has to learn a new playbook. And considering he can probably recite the Patriots playbook in his sleep, I mean, this is some real mental recalibration that has to go on. It started on Sunday with a group of football players from the Pac-12 addressing concerns with COVID-19 health and safety protocols, racial injustice in sports, and player compensation. They threatened to opt out of the season if not heard. A similar list of demands was published on Wednesday by a group of Big Ten players said to be representing 1,000 athletes in that conference. Do you expect this movement to spread? 
Yes, I do. And I don't know why the NCAA and the people who run college sports didn't expect it to spread. I don't know if they've noticed, but the kids these days know how to use social media really well. It's a lot easier to create a movement than it used to be. And I am very impressed by the fact that they're using the pandemic crisis to address other uh, grievances they have beyond simply staying healthy. And finally, Charlie, a Celtics fan on Twitter was watching last Sunday's game against Portland when, and I'm going to clean up his language a bit here, he was pleased with Marcus Smart's play. And then the fan said, and now I'm quoting, Bill Russell is looking down from heaven smiling. Um, uh, yeah, well, I mean, he may well he, he, he may well have been doing this, but he was only there visiting because he's still alive. <laughs> because he's still alive. <laughs> I love that he not only saw the tweet, but was like, hey, I'm watching the game, too. It's a great yeah. game. Yeah, and I really like Marcus Smart, and I'm not dead. <laughs> Charlie Pierce is the guest editor of the Best American Sports Writing 2019, and he joins us each week at this time on Only a Game. Thanks, Charlie. Thank you, Karen. In recent years, athletes, including swimmer Michael Phelps, the NBA's Kevin Love, and soccer players Abby Wambach and Hope Solo, have spoken publicly about their mental health struggles. More and more pro sports teams and programs are making mental health a priority for their players. But 50 years ago, that was not the case. Here's Only a Game's Gary Wallach. When you look up Fort St. James, British Columbia, the first thing you'll find is that it's a former fur trading outpost. It's located about 600 miles north of Vancouver. It has a record low temperature of just over minus 50 degrees Fahrenheit. These days, there's not much going on there besides a bit of mining and logging. It's a tough place to live. Machinist and Army veteran Roy Spencer raised his family in Fort St. James. He encouraged his son's hockey career to help him escape. So December 12, 1970, began as a hopeful day for the Spencer family. 21-year-old Brian was in his second season with the Toronto Maple Leafs. He played left wing. His role was to instigate and to fight. The Leafs game that night was being carried on the country's most popular television show. For Roy Spencer, the prospect of watching his son on CBC's Hockey Night in Canada was a dream come true. Brian told his father that he was going to be interviewed during one of the intermissions. Now all their hard work was paying off. The normally introverted Roy Spencer invited friends and family to his Fort St. James home for a watch party. He bought a big TV antenna because CKPG, the closest CBC affiliate carrying Hockey Night in Canada, was about 100 miles away in Prince George. But sometime before the game began, Roy Spencer learned that CKPG would be carrying a different game the one between NHL newcomers, the Vancouver Canucks, and the California Golden Seals. Reporter John Ray took a phone call in the CKPG newsroom. Maybe 5.30, something like that. He didn't identify himself, but was uh, very, very upset. He wanted to watch the Maple Leafs. Around the same time, receptionist Carol Fawcett was settling in at the front desk for what she knew would be a busy evening. 
There was a local election in Prince George, and her soon-to-be fiancé, news director Stu Fawcett, had hired her as a temp. At about 7.30... I was looking for a key for the photocopier when all of a sudden Tom Hartell, one of the newsmen, came in through the front door that had been locked. And I noticed that right behind him was a very agitated-looking man, and he had a newspaper, and he was sort of holding it in front of him. Hartell said something to Fawcett, and the two men continued down a hallway. Moments later, Fawcett looked up again from her desk. The as-yet-unidentified man had returned and was standing in front of her, brandishing a 9 millimeter pistol. And I absolutely froze. And he lunged towards me and pulled all the wires out of the console of the phone. As he grabbed the phone from me, it hit me on the side of my face. And I flattened myself against the wall behind me, not knowing what he was going to do. I was petrified. The assailant left the reception area and walked back down the hall toward the newsroom. And at that point, I ran as fast as I could into the television studio and flung the studio doors open and wanted to tell them that there was a man at the front desk with a gun. And I just was going, gut, but, gut. I just couldn't speak. John Ray was in the newsroom when the intruder entered. And with this gun in his hand, uh, he sort of ordered us out of the, uh, the newsroom and he wanted to see the TV operation. We're led at gunpoint uh, down the hall There were, I guess, maybe four or five of us. CKPG also had a radio studio. There was a young man doing his very first shift as a DJ that night. And along the hall comes this crazy-looking man with a gun waving all over the place. The poor kid locked the booth and flattened himself on the floor, and there he stayed for a good hour and a half. With the pistol in the back of news director Stu Fawcett, the man herded the entire news staff into the television studio. And Stu was very calm and said, this gentleman has a problem that he'd like to discuss with us. The man lined everybody up against a wall. And this was when probably I was most afraid because he had the gun pointed at us. I think he said something about I've killed before. I don't want to kill anybody. He said, I've killed before and I have killed many times in the commandos. So turn off the television. He said, there's going to be a revolution against the CBC. And he was saying... Listen, I've got a problem with the CBC, and I want to watch the Toronto Maple Leafs game. That's when Fawcett knew who was holding her and her colleagues hostage. She was not a big hockey fan, but she had heard of Spinner Spencer. His son, Spinner, was going to be playing. He'd driven down from Fort St. James that night, and he had ammunition and all sorts of stuff in his car to do some serious damage. John Ray and others tried to explain to Roy Spencer how network affiliates broadcast national programming. We only get one feed, and the feed we've got is the the Canucks game. We didn't have a choice to pull up other programming, basically. You know, it's not up to us, and we have no, no control. And then he said, well, if I can't watch it, then nobody should watch hockey. Turn off the television station. The operator at the control board was looking for approval we told him, turn it off, turn it off. So he did. So anybody in Prince George at that time who was watching television, their screen would have gone black with no explanation. And then, thank goodness, it was sort of a pause, and then he went out the front of the building. 
The news staff felt they needed to cover the story unfolding in their own parking lot, so ignoring the obvious danger, they followed Spencer outside. I was standing frozen in the studio, and the switcher was madly trying to get the television back on the air, and then I thought, I'm the only one in here. So Fawcett followed the reporters into the snowy December night. The RCMP, unbeknownst to me, had surrounded the building. Sometime after Roy Spencer had forced his way into CKPG, someone had managed to call the police. And when they saw Mr. Spencer come out the front door, they said, halt, police, stop or we'll shoot. He crouched down and, and he fired at the police standing by their cars in the parking lot. One of the officers was hit in the foot. Another had his holster grazed. They fired back at him and... Uh, Mr. Spencer was shot and killed right on the front of the station. According to one account, Roy Spencer died as Brian was being interviewed between periods at Maple Leaf Gardens. Brian Spencer was back on the ice the very next day for a game against Buffalo. He tallied two assists and was praised in the press for his mental toughness. Nothing I read about Brian Spencer mentioned anything about him receiving treatment or counseling of any kind. Four days after that game, he delivered a eulogy at his father's funeral. He said his dad was a kind, warm-hearted man. He said that Canada had let Roy Spencer down. And he read from the telegram his father had sent him before the Maple Leafs-Blackhawks game on December 12, 1970. Give them hell, son. We are mighty proud. Carol Fawcett also returned to her job on December 13th, 1970. And I was working the front desk, and uh, a gentleman, the poor man, <laughs> came in as I had my back turned. And he said, excuse me, and I turned around. And unfortunately for him, he was about the same build as Mr. Spencer, and I just screamed... Fawcett was taken off the front desk and put to work in the record library. But she didn't stay at CKPG for long. Every time she went in, she says, she got triggered all over the place. In 1970, there weren't many resources for trauma victims, whether receptionists or pro athletes. Fawcett says she internalized hers for years. She didn't realize how debilitating that could be until she trained to be a trauma counselor. I realized then how much it had indeed impacted on most of my life with that fear, because I did live with fear. I, and I seemed to be easily put into the state of fear in a whole lot of settings. Some say Roy Spencer's behavior on the night of his death was attributable to kidney failure and uremic poisoning. Others say his military experience caused PTSD and that alcoholism and mental illness ran in the family. Spencer now gets up on his feet, drops Magnuson. After a 10-year career as an NHL left winger, Brian Spencer moved to Florida to work as a machinist. He lived in a partially finished shack in a swamp, drank heavily, used drugs, and associated with dealers and prostitutes. In 1987, he was charged with the murder of a Florida bartender. He faced a possible death penalty if convicted. He was acquitted, but just one year later, he was shot and killed during a robbery following a drug deal. 
he was 38 years old. In 2013, the Toronto Maple Leafs formed a partnership with Canada's largest mental health and addiction hospital. Half of the NHL's 30 teams now participate in Hockey Talks Nights aimed at sharing mental health care information with players and fans alike. For current players, coaches and fans, that's all good. But those things came about four decades too late for Brian Spinner Spencer. That's Only a Game's Gary Wallach. Only a Game is produced by Jonathan Chang, Martin Kessler, and Gary Wallach. Our technical director is Marquise Neal. Our executive producer is me. I'm Karen Given. Only a Game returns next week. Thanks for listening. 